welcome to the Daily Brain Bleed. My name is Jeff. My name's Tucker, and Jesus is my non-attorney spokesman. I am a strong advocate for the society that is producing cage-free, grass-fed podcasters. And Mm so, as we are bringing this to you, we are in a field, happily grazing, and we are not secretly calling for help. Right. No. Um, It's fun to just go out and interact with the animals because you learn that, you know, really this idea that animals... um, eat one another or otherwise have conflict. This was only something that happened after the invention of big pharma. You go back even as late in certain parts of the world uh, as the 1970s and all animals lived in peaceful coexistence. So, I mean, this, this is nothing. This is dead. This is nothing. Okay. 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 Do you want, do you want to start again? Okay. Where, 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 Okay, so what are what are we talking about this week? What are we doing? I've lost track entirely. Right. So we, uh, I recommended to you a documentary which I had not seen and still have not seen. I might as well, <laughs> I might as well be open about that. I, I'm, I'm, I'm familiar with a lot of the tertiary um, controversies kind of surrounding it, and I was sort of, se- I've been semi-following the story for sure. years in the sense that this pops up every now and again in the news, but why don't you tell us a little bit of what you thought of it? So we are talking about the, and I cannot believe that the New York Times has, you know, I get to say that in conjunction with what this is about. It's uh, framing Britney Spears. So the documentary goes all the way back and goes through her entire career and kind of follows through in a, in a lens that I really didn't think that I needed um, kind of her, meteoric rise, subsequent fall, marginalization to a certain degree, and then her current legal troubles, which namely is that if you haven't been following along, which, you know, I feel like isn't an insignificant number of people, her father is the conservator of, well, so the way that that breaks down is you have the conservator of someone's body, which is just like, you know, making sure they go places and do things and whatnot, and then conservator of someone's estate, which is all of her money and assets and things like that. And so... Currently, she is in a conservatorship, which is very strange because, generally speaking, it's a legal practice solely reserved for either people with disabilities or very elderly people who have lost the ability to function as individuals. Mm -hmm. And so I want to start the conversation by just saying, holy Moses, what was early 2000s paparazzi culture? Can we talk about that for a minute? It's still alive and well in like the United Kingdom, I think. And honestly, yes, yeah, still in the United States. But we we feel more bad about it, I think. I mean, <laughs> it, it exists, but we go, oh, man, that's a shame as and we click on it. I think it's it's in part due to people like Britney Spears, Lindsay Lohan, people who very publicly were down bad mm-hmm. and like went through these experiences. And we collectively did not help. We hit these people while they were down, and there's a lot of very good um, video of, you know, kind of following these paparazzis and what they were thinking and how the stories were spun about Britney in such a way to portray her, you know, even back with her breakup with Justin Timberlake, you know, she was the bad guy. Not only did we kick her while she was down or uh, kick any of these people while they were down, we kicked anyone who tried to intervene 
in their defense to a large extent. <laughs> um, I remember this, I saw this tweet the other day from like Lindsay Ellis and she was noting in so many words that isn't it interesting that for the longest time in the late 2000s, uh, Chris Crocker, the leave Britney alone guy, <laughs> was one of the go-to uh, objects of public ridicule in the United States. And his whole deal in that one video, which rocketed him to fame and early viral success, was him asking people to leave Britney alone. <laughs> which is, And it's wild in the... Uh, when we think about this in hindsight, that this would be something as controversial. Yes, the video itself was a little cringy, but you take my point. Yeah, I mean, the the other thing that that made me think of, you know, like people peripheral to her. There's a there was a video and some photos run of her with Paris Hilton and Lindsay Lohan, and the headline was "Bimbo Congress Meets Up," mm. and it's just like, like. You know, tabloid culture still exists, but, like, you can't do that anymore. <laughs> I don't think anyways. Like, I don't know why that was ever allowed to run on, like, a front page of anything. You can do it in a roundabout way, I think. You can imply it, but you can't just straight up be like, look at these bimbos. Like, you can't do that anymore. And so there are lots of different ways that you can look at this story and kind of try to understand it through a variety of lenses. And the, the New York times, you know, first of all, just from a pr production aspect, it's done really, really well. There's a lot of interspersed footage, the, um, the interviews themselves with current people, they got a lot of good people to come talk. They got lawyers who were actually involved with the parties in the documentary. You have activists, you have podcast hosts, there which, you go. Hey, you know, I'm just saying New York times hit up your boy. But, um, you know, like it's it's really well done and it's really well shot and the whole thing just feels really good to watch. And it's not overly long. They get a lot of really dense information to you in short order. But the two lenses that I think are most helpful to look at it from are the development of kind of misogyny through pop culture through the early 2000s mm -hmm. and 90s and then also the mental health discourse through the late 90s, early 2000s, because I think those two things have changed so radically across all landscapes from when it happened to her to now, you know. Sure, and I think a large extent of that is social media, right? And we talk about how social media has made everyone super sensitive and it's um, fomented cancel culture and everything, and that's a conversation to be had, but... I think argue even if you think the pendulum has swung too much in one direction, it was, if anything, an overcorrection from it, it was kind of like the, the period in the 2000s was weird because we were recovering from this era in the 1990s when the first wave of political correctness discourse really hit the United States. So there was a reaction to that and it wasn't helped in a lot of ways by 9-11 uh, and the war on terror, meaning that so many people were focused on other things. Um, and so there was a backlash at the time. And now we're kind of, again, cycling through all that again. So again, this is one of those things that happened. Well, and one of the parallels they draw in the documentary that again, so I, I had no context for, cause I was like four or whatever at the time mm -hmm. was the Monica Lewinsky scandal. Right. In that people in America were having to talk about sex and sexual matters in a way that really hadn't had to be the matter of public discourse in a long time. Mm -hmm. And then that also coincided with stuff that was going on like in her career. And so, you know, they they do a really good job of highlighting, you know, like, hey, from the get, she's having to walk this tightrope, you know, and that a lot of 
uh, women in media have to. It, it's one of those things. It's <laughs> going back to the war and terror thing. It was. Uh, I don't know if this clip was in the documentary itself, but I'm led to believe that Justin Timberlake features in it to some extent. Yeah. And um, there was this clip going around on social media of him being interviewed. This was not about Britney Spears specifically. This was his reaction at the time or maybe a year afterwards from the um, Janet Jackson Super Bowl situation. Oof. And um, so he's asked about, he's grilled about his participation in it. And he concludes the interview, or at least the portion that I saw, by essentially saying, you know what? We haven't found those WMDs in Iraq yet. So, <laughs> Did you just what about ism a Super Bowl performance yeah, and- <laughs> with Arab Spring, basically? <laughs> I, um, not wrong, but also not the time. I don't know. Um, that's what I'm going to start doing instead of pleading the fifth. I'm going to be like, did we ever find those WMDs? Did we ever find them? We did not. It's um, the Chewbacca defense. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, I... That's actually a connection that they really don't talk about much in the um, the documentary. And I think it's just because they didn't want to bring like that particular angle into focus. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, so I mean, the other the other part of it that I want to talk about a little bit is the the mental disorder and like mental health kind of side of the conversation. Because at that time, you didn't really have any like leading mental health advocates like out and talking about, you know, hey, this is bipolar disorder. Hey, this is depression. Like there were theories that part of the reason she started experiencing such a decline after the birth of, I believe it was her second child was because she had postpartum mm-hmm. really bad. And that's still, you know, something that people feel disinclined to talk about largely. And it's just, it's one of those things where, you know, you look at someone now, like you look at what's a, what's a more recent example, like some of the struggles, Demi Lovato, Demi Lovato that's where I was going. Yeah. Like she's had with addiction and then also her mental health and like, you know, I mean, someone like Sia, for example, who's mm-hmm. very, very like uh, averse to crowds and lots of people and stuff. And so we found ways to make spaces for these people. Mm-hmm. I mean, I say these people, I don't mean that in a pejorative sense at all. But, you know, at that time, that was not even sure. kind of on the radar. And so it's just it's fascinating to see as a look back and kind of see this curated time capsule of, you know, oh, well, that's how that was going. That's heinous. Let's not do that again. Um. Yes. Yeah. So again, we're in this weird situation where I had heard good things about it, but ultimately had not seen uh, the <laughs> documentary. So I'm not going to pretend to be the guy who can speak with authority about the situation. So I'm asking you, would you recommend it back to me having actually seen it? Oh, 100%. It's so like, you know, again, the production value is really good. And then it's just, it's very timely because they're actually like, I think there was as recently as yesterday, as of the recording of this podcast, the the judge on the case had made another deliberation. Mm-hmm. And so it's still a very ongoing legal battle because technically, even though Brittany has had like album releases and a live show in Vegas and all of these things, she's very clearly a capable person. Mm-hmm. she is still locked in this legal um, conservatorship with her father. And it's, you know, fr- frankly, I just, I hear it and I understand what it means, but it's just like, I wish we could strip the legalese for 10 seconds and get in a room with people and just be like, Hey, what are, what are we doing? Like in a perfect Greek uh, ideal of a justice system, you would be able to just walk in the room and be like, this makes no sense. And the judge would be like, you're right. It doesn't. And then it would be over. It kind of reminds um, me of, Recently, um, and this is entirely different, but this ended up with a judge just coming out and saying, I don't know what the answer here is. 
Um, you know, um, with the whole Tom Clancy universe, uh, the Jack Ryan character, yeah. right? And what's so funny about Jack Ryan as a little sidebar is that he's a character who has low... We talk about all the actors who've played James Bond or Batman or Superman or such, but low-key, Jack Ryan is one of these characters who's been portrayed by, like, Alec Baldwin and uh, Harrison Ford and Ben Affleck and Chris Pine, all these heavy hitters, but we, we just... Anyway... What's funny is, so there was a lawsuit between various different factions who had the film rights to the character and, like, the wife and all that. And eventually the judge just came out yesterday and said, I, I can't figure this out. As far as I know, nobody knows who who owns a Jack Ryan character. Nobody knows <laughs> who can um, <laughs> who can profit from this and who can make adaptations of this anymore. It's, it's an open question for right now. Again, I'm not a legal expert, so I'm not going to pretend to speak with authority about how this situation is going to shake out. But obviously, there's probably going to be more to this process down the line. But yeah, no, it's <laughs> so again, it is always funny when there are, you know, judges who are honest about this sort of thing. And to make a large and mildly unfounded claim for content, as I want to do, um, the amount of litigiousness in our society is a little wacky that, speaking specifically as Americans, because like this is bringing to mind the deal with Taylor Swift and her re-releasing fearless, like her old music mm -hmm. is or reckless or something. I am going to out myself well, as a horrible Taylor Swift. Not fan. even re-releasing it, but well, yes, re-release, but re-recording music and then releasing it again. Yeah, it's, no, and and so like that all has to do with like legal rights to the music and stuff like that, and it's just okay. Again, if we got if you if you put everybody room in a room and say okay, without the legalese, it's it's her song. She wrote the song. Mm -hmm. Like I know we signed a contract with words on it, but that doesn't change the you know the actual fact of the matter. You know what I mean? It just it. it well, I mean, gets under my skin. Right, right, and obviously you're someone who has much more um, knowledge of the music industry and you know how things work when it comes down to brass tacks. So I'll defer to you on that. But we in we are in a society that is so starved for content, possibly now more than ever. Not only starved for content, but also weirdly stuck in a position where we cannot make new content. The 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 question of the legal ownership of this pre-existing IP is only going to come into sharper relief and is only going to cause greater legal headaches because that's all there is, you know? That so, really is all there is anymore. So going forward, if you are in the mindset to write music or create art of any kind, just literally bake your first and last name into the medium in some way and mail everything to yourself. Go about as though you were a troubadour in <laughs> medieval times and just sing your song um, in every city you come across without making any sort of pretense of making a living uh, from doing it. And you may say, well, Tucker, that's unfair. I, I should be able to make a living from doing my art. Well, you know what? I'd like a unicorn. I, I would like to ride upon a unicorn. But, you know, we got to realize on some level that the odds of certain things happening anymore are just dismal. I mean, how much does an art artist actually make from their song being played on Spotify? 
Oh, we are we are not even going to try to approach streaming discourse. Mm. I mean, the I I forget what the actual number is, but the amount of streams needed monthly to generate literally a minimum wage job, no one is making out big on streaming except for like multi platinum artists. It's just not. And even then, they're arguably making out less than they should right. be. So the conventional wisdom is that, of course, if you really want to make it big um, in recording, what you what you really need to do is be performing live, and you have to understand on some level that your recording is simply promotional to that end. Which means that the logical conclusion of our situation is to make this podcast profitable, we need to start doing live shows. Yes, one hundred percent. Post pandemic, come see. Brain bleed live. It's it's just gonna be a guy it's, bleeding bleeding from his brain. It's, it's literally just gonna be like a feed from a hospital OR. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually gonna be surprisingly tragic and jarring. Guaranteed to be the worst possible experience or your money back. Sure. So I mean that's uh that's the Britney uh what framing Britney Spears. Go watch it. Give it a watch. It's only like an hour and twenty minutes, really well done. Can't can't say enough good things about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so now we're going to move on to a film that we've actually both seen. So yeah, so, you know, in a, in a film discussion podcast, we're now going to move into arguably the uh, correct nature of things. I, I, I don't know. I think we've <laughs> wrung out a surprising amount of conversation and commentary from the one end of it, but yeah, but, I, I never would have put together nine 11 and Britney Spears, you know? So I, I, I yeah, who did nine? Are you, are we making an input? Have you ever seen Britney Spears and nine 11 in the same room? <laughs> It, it, you know, you can't explain that. Just cite Bill O'Reilly. You can't explain. Okay. Um, yeah, no. So we both saw recently the Spanish language film. And in fact, I believe it is a Spanish film as in produced in yes. Spain um, called The Platform. Now we did experience, we, I say we both saw it, but we experienced it in slightly different manners. Correct. You saw it um, subbed. I saw it dubbed. I saw it as God intended. As God intended. Well, did, I mean, did I guess. God, as did God, God in, intend for the little words to show up at the I bottom mean, I of the suppose screen? as God intended would have been me just understanding it in Spanish, but <laughs> I, I function in Spanish about as well as like a fifth grader. So I that mean, was going to be better than a, a lot stretch. of Americans, you know? Um, Thank you. High school. It's funny. That and, and again, this has no bearing on the content of the film itself. I just maybe it's because I was watching it relatively late at li- at night. But <laughs> late I, in life, yeah, late in life. <laughs> I I, I time traveled to my eighties and saw the film, <laughs> and then he took notes. Old Tucker took notes and sent them back to me, so I'm relating them as best I can. No, um, it's interesting. Maybe it was just because it was late at night and I was hallucinating slightly, but. With the dubbed ber- version, I was almost certain that they were slightly digitally altering the actor's lips to make it closer to yeah. comport. And if the goal was to make this more seamless, it, the, the <laughs> no. seams were showing. This was a Frankenstein situation. Well, so the first time that I watched this, I watched it on Netflix Party with some mm-hmm. of my friends. And I pressed play and it started doing the thing. And we were all just like, what the hell is happening to Mm -hmm. the film? And so we all just collectively agreed. Yeah, no, this is not watchable as is. So we just turned on the subs and then it was a great time for everybody. Mm -hmm. Um, And so let's, but before we get into subs versus dubs discourse at large, because I feel very passionately about Mm it. um, Let's talk about the movie a little bit first. So how how did it strike you? It's funny. It's funny to watch a film with a message that's simultaneously vague and ham-fisted. 
But you see what I mean, yeah, right? That's, that's like, actually a very good summation. Yeah. It's, it's definitely trying to be about something. It is definitely a film that could only be taken on an allegorical level. But what is the allegory? I guess don't waste food. Well, and in prepping my um, in prepping my show notes, I have several things that it's very prominently about. But you can't really say, oh, this is the point. Like specifically with the ending, it brought to mind some other films that I've seen, like It Comes at Night and Midsummer, and some other things that end in kind of a way where it's just like, well, it's over. Mm-hmm. How do I feel about it? Let's sum up the film briefly. It's there's a platform. Yeah, there is a platform. <laughs> just like they basically they're on Spotify. Um, <laughs> it's an allegory for Spotify, and no. Maybe. Uh, so who, who's to say? They're they're in prison. They're a bunch of floors in the prison, and it's all vertical, vertically oriented. And basically, once a day, I'm understood to believe, the there is a platform that descends straight through a hole in the center of the room, and there's a bunch of food on it. Mm-hmm. And on the first level, it's completely full of all of this wonderful decadent food. And as it descends, you know, you only get a limited time to eat, and you mm-hmm. can't keep any food on the floor after the platform goes down. So you eat very ravenously for you know two minutes and then it goes down to the next floor and down to the next floor and the problem is after you get past about the first 40 to 50 floors there's no food left Mm -hmm. and there are like what two or three hundred odd floors in the thing and that's kind of the way it's set up is there's a lot of hunger and starvation and this is kind of why we need gary on the podcast we need a (laughs) math guy to like okay so spoilers i guess there are 333 floors right and sure. th- th- okay and each platform is the room in therein is roughly what eight nine feet tall something like that sure so like how long is this thing and how long in time does it take for the table to fully go down would this even do it in a day okay yes Yes, I'm doing the thing where I'm trying to logically work out how the scenario works. But again, it's obvious. I hate it when people rely too much on the allegory thing, though, where it's like, oh, you can't try to figure out the world. It's ob- You obviously have to take it um, for its allegorical meaning and try not to nitpick. And again, that's fine. I get that. But I think that makes more sense when you're pretty clear as to what it is trying to convey. And when you're not clear what it's trying to convey, then the, uh, then the holes in the story loom more ominously. You see what I mean? Yes. Um, so give me one more second to finish doing some quick maths. Okay. So roughly with three minutes per floor, if we include like two minutes for it to sit there and then 30 seconds, which is a little generous for it to go down. Mm-hmm. Um, that would take roughly 16.65 hours for it to go all the way down to 333. And when we see it rise, it's always super, super fast. So like probably 60 seconds for it to shoot back to the top. Mm-hmm. So it is feasible for it to all happen in a day, but it would pretty much be happening all day, mm-hmm. roughly, except for eight hours. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there's the quick maths on that. Well, now I know. Now you know. I guess I'm a fool. The allegory technically works, sort of. Right. Well, and so the thing, like, so the things that I thought you were supposed to derive from it is that there's commentary on, like, the 1% and the idea of the privileged few who care not for those that they shaft over by being so privileged. Mm -hmm. I think there was commentary on the human condition, you know, 
and how people like in survival situations will do things that are very morally gray or abhorrent. Like there's some cannibalism in the film and there's some murder. There's uh, lots of very bad things that happen to people Mm -hmm. as a result of them being in dire straits. And so I think there's some commentary there. And then the, the prominent featuring of Don Quixote, (laughs) I guess Um, Uh, I think there was a message there. 20% there was a meaningful message. 80% they're trying to imbue this with a bit more artistic meaning by, you know, borrowing it from uh, Cervantes. You know what I mean? <laughs> so um, I guess if you really want to take the privilege metaphor seriously, the, the problem would be that everyone is assigned to a room, rather a floor, randomly. Right. And it switches out after every month. One month you could be you could very well be on the bottom floor, but the next month you could be on the top floor if you survive. Right. It's entirely arbitrary. And if you wanted to actually wring some discourse about privilege from that, it wouldn't be random and arbitrary. You see what I mean? It would be more Snowpiercer esque in that you are you are mm-hmm. born into a cast and you live there now. And and I guess, you know, if you wanted birth yes it is on some level arbitrary it where is you're random going to but be. it doesn't yeah. rehappen a bunch of times in your lifetime i mean unless you believe in reincarnation and if so that's fine but i'm saying yeah, within sure. one lifetime um it doesn't work like that yeah. for most people i mean i think that the element that they were trying to bring to that is more so in showing that like you're all humans in the same position it's just who's ahead today and who's ahead tomorrow mm-hmm. and then arguably everyone who's in the hole which is what they call the um the prison everyone who's in the hole is part of the 99 percent fighting over scraps of the people at the top making all the food. They're mm-hmm. actually the 1% that aren't in the hole, mm-hmm. I suppose. And so, I mean, I for, for me personally, the way that it stimulates kind of you to think of these things on your own and it's not explicitly trying to give you a 100% message, I actually kind of like, because I like mm. a movie to just kind of tickle me a little bit in my brain and say, hey, think about this and inject your own meaning a little bit. Mm-hmm. And some people argue that slight negligence on the writer's or director's part, but like for me anyways, this was a 10 out of 10 thinker. Like sure. I'd loved to just sit and contemplate it for like two hours after I watched it. Whenever you talk about allegory and its function, I always think about what Tolkien said when um, when he was asked whether the Lord of the Rings or any of his works were meant to be an allegory for something, be it World War II or communism or Nazism or whatever the case may be. And he always disliked allegory. He thought, you know, it was almost diminishing the author's work to assume that, you know, their imagination was limited to trying to make a parallel for some real-world scenario. And he always liked to substitute the term applicability, right? He wrote a story with some universal themes, and some of them are going to be applicable to what is happening in the world today. Some of them are not. And if you want to derive value from that, that's great, but you shouldn't expect the... uh, You shouldn't expect every bit of what... um, the author has written to a to apply to some sort of um, scenario that you've made up in your head. And that's all well taken. But again, well, Tolkien, there you go. Uh, <laughs> but again, in this specific instance, um, without looking it up, because I want to try to like construct it in my head 
what the author was, pro- what the writers and the director and everything were probably most going for. Uh, it just, it felt too on the nose, again, ham-fisted to be, oh, this is just a fun scenario we're doing. Wouldn't it be fun if we were in this, right? It wouldn't be fun. Um, Not fun, no. He doesn't have a good time, our main you, character doesn't. If, if you're on the first floor, like all the time, you actually have a pretty good time. Oh, do we even kind of want to talk about the religious under-theming in that they kind of tried to make him Christ, like a little bit? Um, They, they tried to make, <laughs> um, but I mean, like, what was trying to be accomplished here? Oh, like, I don't think it was to an end at all. I think it was just to represent the concept. Uh, again, it's like, you know, you bring up Cervantes to... Uh, give it some artistic merit. You reference Christ and religion as a way to grant it some sort of um, philosophical merit. But again, if y- y- you got to follow through on that on some level. Um, and I don't think they really did because, okay, so the film ends with him and some other fellow who he meets on one of the levels. They're going down. Their initial plan is to... Um, prevent the people from on the first 50 levels from eating at all because they've already had enough food over the past several days to last them a while. They, they can go a day without yeah. eating. And they start and, this venture from relatively high up. Sure. Um, and then they, after, um, after the 50th floor, they start um, doling out food, letting people have a little bit, not too much, um, so as to prevent the other people, but then it kind of evolves in that. Okay. Now they have to take a, sp- a specific, um, dessert item down because. Well, so halfway down, they run into this kind of old guru esque figure. And, um, at some point the mission becomes to send a message to the people at the top. And so the way that they decide that is that the panna cotta, which would be a delicacy, mm-hmm. would never make it all the way to the bottom floor and back up untouched. And so the message was to be sent through the panna cotta. But then it gets, in my opinion, and so again, this is my interpretation of the film, very uh, metaphorical. It is. I don't find it literal in that they find a child and then they send the child up with the panna cotta. Because first of all, I think that the scene towards the beginning of the film where they find the panacolta and they say they must have rejected it because there is a hair on it. Like that to me makes canon that there was not actually literally a child on the platform because that would have gotten someone's attention. I think that then what was his mother? There's a woman who shows up every now and again in this film who's going down every day because she's trying to find her child. Yeah. So it, it's discussed that people think that she's just insane and she came in alone. The okay. one, the woman who's the officer from the government who later gets put in the room with our protagonist says, oh, yeah, she's literally just batshit crazy. And well, so, you know, maybe they're wrong. The government? Yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, you know, um, I think that this woman is being treated just as unfairly as Brittany from earlier, frankly. <laughs> uh, because there, there was a kid. Well, there was so, unless I, again you think that again, I, everyone's going I think crazy the kid, now. I think the kid is metaphorical, and so for me, anyways, what I got out of the ending was that they succeeded in their venture to send the Panacotta to the top, mm-hmm. but because there is such a large disconnect between the ninety-nine percent and the one percent, when the message got there, they didn't even know how to understand it. it. They weren't speaking the same language because to them, 
you would reject food because it's not to your standards. Whereas to everyone in the whole, you would never reject food. Cause I mean, you're eating, it's very graphically jarring to see them on like the 40th level, getting everybody's scraps and eating after people have walked on the table. And you know, like to them, there is no such thing as food that does not merit mm. eating. And so I think they're trying to show the disconnect between classes mm. in that way. Which could entirely be conjecture on my part because I've thought about this film way too much. Mm -hmm. But <laughs> I don't know. I think we're primed on some level from. So the past few years, we've been living in kind of this indie horror boom fueled in no small, small part by A24 and to lesser extent Blumhouse and all of these um, production companies that specialize in funding and releasing these smaller horror films and horror is always except in very specific circumstances going to be a um, small budget affair by having graphic violence and endings that are anything but feel good in most circumstances. You're probably not going to appeal to an Avengers level audience. So whereas one point in time it was just schlock, it was okay. We were knowing that we're just making these movies, um, uh, for people who just want to see a bunch of gore and maybe some women's breasts and explosions. If you're really, you know, you're really, <laughs> you pull pushing. out all the stops. There yeah. you go. Um, with maybe some social commentary inserted in there uh, as kind of an extra, if you're George Romero and you're a genius who just happens to love zombies. Um, now I get the sense that in the past few years that the indie scene, as far as like the Oscar bait drama, and the horror scene are slowly melting together. And this comes with the expectation that every one of these horror films has to be about something, right? Um, that at least the horror film in a certain sort of like uh, specific genre. And in a lot of ways, you could probably compare this film to Raw, which is another uh, foreign film. Uh, you mean like WWE Raw, like yes, SmackDown? Yes, yes, which, which also features <laughs> cannibalism. But I mean, obviously, in the United States, you have a Get Out, which deals with the themes of racism. You have Hereditary, which deals with the themes of uh, grief, especially a mother's grief. You have um, what was It Follows, which Ooh. that's a really good movie. That's so a like, real. We should talk about that another time. It Follows is good because it's one of those scenarios where I think the applicability works in the sense that, yeah, maybe, maybe the monster in the film is just like an STD, right? And you can take it on that level, but it yeah. also has those kind of universal themes. It's when you don't try, like it kind of undercuts the, Oh, the, the general applicability of any scenario. If you over-engineer it to the point where it's about a very specific thing, like a giant, like elevator descending all these floors. And it's like, if it's really high concept, then you're kind of marrying it on some level to being about something. If it's just some monster that's invisible, it could be about anything. You see well, what I mean? And so a movie that I think does kind of both of these really well is uh, the Babadook. Yes. Uh, and that's largely about grief as well and processing and moving on and stuff like that. And so, I mean, I don't know when I, when I saw the platform, I didn't think of it as giving me a statement about anything. Mm -hmm. I felt like it invited me to think. It asked me questions and said, you know, here are individuals with belief systems. Because everyone in the thing is kind of a caricature of something. You have the pragmatist. You have the very 
optimistic believer. You have all of these kind of archetypes of the people. bureaucrat. Yeah. And you're asked, you know, it posits you with kind of this question, how do you feel? How, how would you react? How do you feel like this is in reacting to this unjust system? And I don't think it portrays any of them as being technically right. I think it just, it less so than attempting to give you an answer, it poses a series of questions. And I enjoyed that as a mm-hmm. viewer. I, mean, I, I didn't dislike the movie. I just think that it's one of those movies that you have to enjoy on any level as just an experience. But the minute that you think about it for more than two seconds, the questions pop up and we're talking about it. So we're thinking about, you know, so it's fair to bring up uh, some of the issues that one might have um, with how, but again, it's, it's good. I mean, if you just want a nice horror flick, um, which yeah has some pretty gnarly visuals at certain points. Um, oh, and one of the points I had here was about the scoring. I really enjoyed the scoring, specifically all of the like modern percussive elements. Hmm. It's very, um, it can be very jarring at times, especially when like there's very tense things happening on screen. They have a very good way of ratcheting that up in kind of a non traditional sense, where you're not just getting like big loud sounds and risers and stuff like that. What's the name of the dessert again? Uh, Panacotta. I think that um, on Binging with Babish, uh, Andrew Ray should do the panicot. <laughs> That's my... Should he make already eaten yes. seafood and stuff yes. to go along with yes. it? <laughs> yes. Uh, he's already done, tried to do with like a Hannibal episode, like people meat. So that we, hey. you know, it's, it's pork. It's Pork is apparently the, the most common. Yeah, that's what he wants you to think is he yeah, did yeah, pork. I guess so. He uh, didn't do pork. <laughs> maybe. I don't know. Uh, it's, it's an intern. <laughs> they just, they were like, hey, bud, you got any like flank steak? <laughs> I mean, you know, choosing to be an unpaid intern, choosing to be flank steak. Might rather. Are, you know, um, <laughs> what are you going to do? Um, any other thoughts about this film? Uh, no, not, not really. I think I've, I think I've said my piece. I've said what I said, what I wanted to say about it. I also, I want to, you know, at the, at the risk of not being clear about, um, understanding your criticisms of the film. I think you're a hundred percent right. Like I, I do think it, it fails on a certain level to make a cohesive point, but that's not a deal breaker for me. Yeah. I mean, it's it's not a deal breaker for me either. It's just, let me be clear. If you're going in this film, just say, want to watch a fun horror science fiction scenario to pass the time for what an hour and a half, go for it. If you want to watch this film because you think it's serious and coherent social commentary in the same way as, again, say Get Out is. No, eh, no, 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 no. Not, eh. not so much. You know, and, and that's the thing. I think there are a lot of people who, again, because we're living in this horror boom, they want to watch horror, but they on some level feel a little guilty about it because they of the kind of the negative connotations that the genre has. So they need to tell themselves, oh, I'm, I'm watching this horror movie because it tells us something about the human experience, right? It tells us something about this specific social issue. And that's why just watch the horror movie. Just watch the horror. It's okay. It's okay. I'm not going to judge you. Jeff's not going to judge you. I feel like Saw set us back 10 years in terms of just being able to watch a flick and just enjoy it because they made nine of them. And (laughs) there was no freaking point behind like the second one. 
Like they, they were really pumping those out for a while. They like, a were new moving. one was coming out like every year. They had week. some poor C list rider shackled to a radiator in a basement saying, How else can I kill someone? There was a certain point in the mid to late two thousands when we were at the height of the both the Saw franchise and this obsession with folks in the paparazzi of tearing down women like Britney Spears and Lindsay Lohan and Amanda Bynes and such. And there has to be a connection on some sort of deep <laughs> social level. This has to be about like the same thing in our culture. I think it's that we Americanized schadenfreude to a point of hubris. Mm, and yes. we just, we like oh seeing God, yes. people suffer too much. Right. And now we all suffer. Yes. I wonder what the horror of the 2020s is going to be. It's just going to be nut shots. <laughs> it's going to be, you go into a movie theater and then it pops up like a zoom screen and you're just going to be like, I don't want to be here anymore. And that's going to be it. It's, it's going, you're going to go in and it's just, they're going to hand you GD paperwork, and <laughs> walk you through like a YouTube tutorial about how to do it. See, I can't like, I've been thinking about, um, what it's going to be like after I can't like, after I'm not, it's not expected of me to wear a mask anymore. Mm. And I don't want people to perceive the bottom half of my face anymore. I don't want it to be there. Mm-hmm. I've really like just being eyeballs and then like cloth. <laughs> and so that's a horror movie for me is people perceiving my jawline again. Cause I'm not ready for that. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, Remember when there was a period of time in like the mid part of the last decade when I started going around in like a hat and like sunglasses and no one could recognize me because everyone was going by my red hair. Like, I, I don't remember this. Well, no. it happened. Oh. It happened. So you were incognito for yeah. a little while. And this was before I had the beard consistently. So, huh. well, maybe, so, maybe I'll shave my beard and wear sunglasses. Viewers, if you weren't sure which of us in the cartoon characters was which, I am the one with the red hair. And I am the one with the long brown hair and the circular the, the glasses. rather ethnically ambiguous. Implying fellow. anyone who doesn't know both of us would listen to this at this point. <laughs> hey, hey, one day, one day, one day. Someday. Yeah. Someone's going to listen and they're going to get to this point and like, I mean, some podcasts you listen to, both of them sound exactly the same. I feel like that's a lot of podcasts, actually. I have a really hard time telling podcast hosts apart. Some of them you can't. Like, like five, six episodes. Something like, you know, Chapo Trap House, you, you know who they are. Something like Red Scare, it's like, these women sound exactly alike. Oh, my God. What am I going to do? I, I'm only listening to you guys, so I can make, like, notes as to what I'm supposed to do as a podcaster. <laughs> you know? So, um... Let's talk about dubs versus subs for just like a uh, minute because okay, I want to get okay, I want to okay. get like a little bit of a take on that. Do you do you want me to defend my my experience because I'm not? Um, but <laughs> I mean, like the yeah, best defense is no defense. The best defense is if you're like doing three things and you're like on your phone and on your computer, but you also want the movie on the background. Yes, it helps to have. Some sort of like being able to like know what is happening in the movie. If you don't have your eyeballs on the movie at all time, you're not going to know what's happening, especially with a movie like The Platform where, you know. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot going on. I see. I'm personally the type of person I cannot put a movie on and then not give it my full attention. Mm -hmm. If I catch myself being on my phone during a movie, I turn it off because Mm. it's not holding my attention. So that's that's interesting. Um, just people interact with like media in different ways, you know? Sure. sure. Um, 
my so I I have a list of some things here where I've some prominent foreign language films that I saw and watched subbed like Parasite, Old Boy, mm. um, and I I don't know like for me it's just it's not like I I just I like hearing the original voices and I don't really mind to kind of read along and I still feel like I can observe the whole scene and the cinematography and everything else. Like it doesn't really feel like that much of a detriment to me to -hmm. watch something subbed. So, I mean, I, I saw, I'm pretty sure I saw parasite sub. I mean, again, you're not going to hear me like defend dubbing on some sort of deep artistic level, except like, I don't know, maybe you're deaf. And you know the sub debate. The sub dub debate is entirely irrelevant to you. You just want to know what's happening in the movie. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I also like so I grew up in a household where there was a bit of anime to be watched, mm. and so I you know I'd seen some on like Toonami or whatever garden variety anime was available through cable, and then I saw like a little bit of like actual like you know bought DVD kind of stuff, and then you watched it subbed, and I don't know like it was just it's kind of a form of media that I've always grown up with. And then like, sometimes I just turn subs on, even if I don't need them, even if it's in English, because I like, it makes it easier for me to track what people are saying. Like, especially dialect films. Sometimes I turn them on just because I can't deal with hearing people like not understanding what people are saying clearly. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think, you know, there are certain instances where even if you don't know what exactly is being said, it's, it's it's like when you're watching a movie or TV show with someone and you don't quite catch what someone's saying and um and the person asks you, "Oh, what what's what they say? What they say?" And it's like, "Hey, I'm I'm what like, you know, um if I'm telling you this, I'm not going to know what they're going to be saying next. So, you know, we're already losing information <laughs> at this point anyway. But B, it's like in most instances like it's I don't know where I'm going. With there this. are very few points in a piece of media where one line is so critically important that missing it largely affects how you perceive the rest of the work. You know, I went to the bathroom at the end of Empire, Empire Strikes Back and just didn't catch up <laughs> with it at any point. I just got to know why was there so much animosity? So weird, weird energy <laughs> uh, going on in the next weird movie, vibes. you know? <laughs> Yeah, I, uh, I, so, I mean, I, I took a, a quick bathroom break at the end of Titanic and like, <laughs> you know, I thought it was a really nice love story, you know, it's, it's great. Paint me like a French girl. Good. Good stuff. Thanks, Leo. If you're, you know? wait, I mean, I'm doing that. I'm doing it again. I'm doing it again. It's like, if you're taking a bathroom break, that was it covered the entirety of the sinking of the Titanic. What did you eat? <laughs> like, what did you eat to trigger such a horrendous reaction within? An entire package of Lady Gaga Oreos, oh. which have been sitting in my studio for the last week, and I consumed all of them, and I don't feel bad about it. Hey, you know, it's all right. It's all good. So what needs to happen next is Britney Oreos. Um, there's probably a conversation to be had about that that's in- incredibly poor taste, and we're probably not the person to hash out what a Britney Spears Oreo would look like. There are a lot of really low-hanging fruit um, options there. We're not quite at that stage of our career. No, not for us. All right. Well, I'm Tucker. I'm Jeff. And... That's, 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 our, that's our outro? That's what we're doing? Yeah, sure. Why not? Okay.
All right, turn off. Bye. Turn off, damn it. Also, just real quick, wanted to give everyone a little heads up that we have created a Twitter handle. So please give us a follow at tbrainbleed. That is at tbrainbleed. We also have a Gmail account if you want to, I don't know, come on the show, send us an idea for a segment, anything like that. Uh, You can send that to not my personal email. (laughs) You can send that to dailybrainbleedpod at gmail.com. That is dailybrainbleedpod at gmail.com. 